millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies. From the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords, if it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fighting on Film. We're very lucky this week to be joined by Jonathan Ferguson, who is Keeper of Firearms and Artillery at the Royal Armouries. And we are going to be looking at the most recent adaptation of Last of the Mohicans. Jonathan, thanks for coming on. The first thing we always ask guests is, when did you first see the film? Oh, um, I wasn't really allowed to go to the cinema that often. So, and I was just a little bit too early for me to be able to go with my friends and stuff, I guess. Couldn't drive age 13. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure it would have been one of many films that I saw on TV, probably the network premiere uh, with my parents. So not very, not very exciting, but uh, that, that would have been it. Well, I was thinking about it the other day, and I, I can't remember the first time I saw it. I'm almost certain I got it out of the library. Wow. At some point when I was around 10. That dates you really badly. Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, so it definitely came out of the library, and I was like, oh, that's cool. It's got a gun on the front of it. Um, you just know where it's come from, don't you? Um, just many trips <laughs> to the library. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, and then I, I think I have the, I had the VHS of it, and then the DVD. It just really captured my imagination as a kid. I thought this is this is amazing. Mm. But can you remember when you first saw it, Rob? Well, this is a, I'm the spanner in the works. I'd never <laughs> seen it until Matt mentioned that we were having Good question Jonathan on, and he was like, "Have you seen Last of the Mohicans?" And I sort of like was like, "What? What?" I'm a big fan of Michael Mann's other work. Like he is like one of my favorite heist movies. I mean, it's, it's incredible. So to yep, see him do a, a, like a period piece a few years beforehand, it was, it was incredible. And I was not disappointed. 
Wes Studi in both of them, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Being a badass, mm. which is a, a great segue into talking about cast, I guess. So we've got Daniel Day Lewis, who is Nathaniel Hawkeye Poe, and then he's in in uh, Fennimore Cooper's um, book. He's Natty Bumpo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And hilariously, he's credited on Google as Natty Bumpo. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not tr- not correct, but hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> the the films the film the adaptation is is based on the novel Last of the Mohicans, which came out in the eighteen thirties, um, and there's been I think about a dozen adaptations for screen, mm. going all the way back to like a silent version in nineteen oh nine. Oh wow! And Man's uh, ninety two version is is the most recent, although I think there might have been like a Canadian drama series called Hawkeye that <laughs> might have been made at some point in the 90s. But anyway, back to the cast. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis is huge, isn't he? You know, he's in Lincoln, um, Gangs of New York. I mean, this is the first movie I'd ever seen him in. Like, I must admit, never seen a Daniel Day-Lewis movie. Um, My God, this is that is a hell of a thing to admit on a film yeah, podcast. I know, I know. But well, you've got to, haven't you? You know, we're all, you know. Anything, anything for honesty, but damn. One of those actors that passed me by, I'm afraid. So then we've got Major Duncan Haywood, um, played by Steve Waddington. He was in The Parole Officer with Steve Coogan, um, one of me and Matt's favourites. Mm-hmm. And he was also in Face, um, a 1995 film where he starred alongside Damon Albarn. And that's another heist film. He's been in loads of stuff. He, he's, yeah. you know, he's, he's a decent actor. Um, you've got Madeline Stowe as, as Cora Monroe. She played um, Julia Moore in We Were Soldiers. Nice little war movie link. Mm. Um, Wes Studi, as John mentioned. Uh, Maurice Robes as uh, Kendall Monroe. Uh, Pete Postlewaite's in there as Captain Beams. He has like a very short piece. There's a lot of actors that are in this. That yeah, got... but he's, he's absolutely metal when he's on screen, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, it's a shame his flintlock doesn't work at the end and he just gets clobbered. It does. Um, yeah, does. Occupational hazard, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. Um, Colm Meany, uh, the Irish actor's in there, but we, I think most of his scenes got cut ah. completely. Um, and there's a very early appearance for Jared Harris. I thought I heard his voice at one point. Yes, yeah. So he's the he's the lieutenant at the colonial settlement, the Cameron's um, homestead, and he's yeah. calling on everyone to, to join the colonial militia. Oh, that's, and that's him. him. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought I recognised. Yeah. Yeah, I recognised the the voice, but I honestly I'd never sort of put two and two together that he was in it. I thought I was hearing things. I honestly I heard his voice and went. My brain went Jared Harris, and I looked back at the screen. No. <laughs> <laughs> Who have I missed? Um, we missed Russell Means. Oh, yes. Who plays um, The Last of the Mohicans, literally. Yeah. Um, Gatchkook. Oh, and uh, Jodie May as Alice Munro, the uh, kennel's younger daughter. There's plenty of other people in there, but you basically either they had scenes cut from the film or they didn't quite. Yeah. There's one or two other names that you go, they were in that? Mm. And you you just don't click that they're in there. I scoured it looking for Cole Meany because he. You couldn't have disguised Cole Meany, the sort of he's that yeah. big, bigger than life sort of that character actor. And yeah. I was like, where is he? He's not in this. I was kind of looking no, forward not. to him, you know, s- sending a lo- load of red coats to their death, but it didn't happen. I was, I was looking the forward first to that. I've heard of him being in it, and I've seen it uh, at least a dozen times. <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's so weird. So, production, I guess, we come on to next. So, it was directed by Michael Mann, um, famous for Heat, 1995. Yeah, three years before Heat. Yeah, three years before. And he'd just come off a film called um, Manhunter um, in 1986, and that was a little bit of a bomb. So, he took some time off, and he came back strong with this one. 
um, it was released in the US on the 25th of September, 92. Waited a few months um, over here. We got it on the 6th of November. It was made for a budget of 40 million and it made 143 million. So it was a big success, really big film at the time. You know, it didn't come out in the summer, but it re- really feels like a summer blockbuster, summer epic. Mm. And I have a retro review this week. First one we've had for a while. And this comes from uh, the Daily Mirror's film reviewer, Pauline McClude, um, from the 6th of November, 96, the, the day it came out here. War is raging between England and France in the new world. Hawkeye, the adopted son of the last of the Mohicans, falls in love with feisty, headstrong Cora, the daughter of a British officer. After rescuing her and her younger sister from the vicious Huron war captain, Magua, but the psychotic Magua is hell-bent on revenge for his people and he watches them being eliminated. He wants the girls and their bombastic father, Colonel Monroe, dead. And this is where the censors have taken a very liberal view of this truly breathtaking historical epic. Okay, there's no sex and there's certainly no bad language, but the fight scenes are so graphic with the stomach churning scalpings, tomahawks being thrashed around like meat cleavers and bodies being hacked to bits. I'm amazed it's been given a 12 certificate. The story is cliched and somewhat predictable, but it's a fascinating insight into American history. And of course, the gorgeous Daniel Day-Lewis is ever present. Quite the review, the gorgeous Daniel Day-Lewis. He is gorgeous in this. He's got lovely hair. He does. But um, yeah, that, that's interesting. I don't know whether I would call Monroe's character bombastic, but I suppose... The film has that sort of standard trope where the British are the baddies, even when they're the goodies in this period. I suppose you come off as rather arrogant. That's kind of a holdover from a lot of the portrayals of this period. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of films based in in um, the French and Indian War, the the 1750s, that were made in like the, the late 30s through to the early 50s. Um, and they all have the the, the, Eng- the British officers in it are always very much of that ilk where they're they're arrogant, um, and it has this sort of like they look down on the colonials sort of thing. Yeah, um, which I thought contrast in this film, I thought that contrasted really interestingly with how the relations between settlers and the Native Americans uh, is actually portrayed because it shows them as quite integrated, um, especially with certain tribes. Obviously, mm. there was. Um, lines that were drawn between you know french and, and british tribes that were that were supportive um i just i found that really interesting and, and quite a it's quite balanced it's quite it's quite a, an intricate sort of depiction you know the, the shown playing native american games together uh, at that sort of early um settler meeting yeah and i suppose a lot of audience then and probably now wouldn't have considered you know everyone whenever anyone thinks of um native americans or uh, North American indigenous peoples, everyone always thinks Apaches, Sioux, um, you know, those classic sort of cowboy and Indian films. Mm. Whereas this is a film that's set in New York state or at, at the time, New York, the province. It's one of the few films that gives um, a look at the frontier before it really moved West, which I quite like. Yeah. They mentioned Algonquin at one point, don't they? They do. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a completely historically correct sort of film. We can we can definitely say that much, but it's probably more correct than the original book was. So man basically walked a fine line between putting a little bit more historical accuracy, but also keep trying to keep the plot of the book. There's sort of some really massive disconnects between the book and the, and the film. Um, production wise, I suppose we should get back into the production um, before we move on. 
uh, cinematography by uh, Dante Spinotti, who worked with Man on a lot of films, and he does brilliant work. The cinematography in this is really gorgeous. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And the locations are, are amazing. It's mostly shot in the Blue Ridge Mountains, which are in North Carolina rather than New York, but really stunning, really stunning location stuff. Can anyone guess who the military advisor on the film was? There's more than one. There is. But Dale Dye from Private Ryan is yep. involved. Yep. Oh my gosh. Yeah, everywhere. Um, the historical um consultant for the for the military aspects of it was Philip Haythornwaite. Ah. Who's a noted 18th century Napoleonic historian. Mm. But Dale Dye was a surprise. I was like, really? So I know that it won BAFTA for Best Cinematography and it also picked up an Academy Award um, for Best Sound. Um, Well-deserved. Well um, only man's only film that's won an Oscar, which is crazy. Really? That's yeah. amazing. The sound on it is great, though. The way they sell the gunshots, bullet strikes, and especially impacts from, from knives, clubs. Yeah. Some of it is choreography and good filming and good editing. Some of it is the absolutely sickening noises that yeah. <laughs> the yeah. weapons make. When the Gunstock Club hits um, hits Magua's shoulder, there's those just, wow, yeah. yeah. You can feel it. That blunt force trauma, isn't it? It's horrible. That reviewer uh, talking about how graphic it was and she's surprised it got a 12. I, actually, I don't disagree with the latter part, but uh, most of the violence is sold not by straight up gore. There's, there's a very gory shot of that spike protruding from Magwa's back. Mm. Patient. It's like the, there's a guy yeah. who gets shot in the face at one point and, you know, he's clearly feeling the, the worse for it. Um, and that's done with, <laughs> with some good makeup. But a surprising amount of it is really quite quick cut and mm. your brain fills it in. Yeah, you don't you don't see uh, Junkas get his throat slit, for instance. Mm. Or it's sort of just... It, just out of frame. It's Wes Studi. He sells that scene. He sells it because he gets a little spurt of blood on his face. Mm. And that's all you well, need. There is the, I did forget the um, uh, compound fracture of his arm. Oh, yeah. 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 We'll we'll definitely come back to this in fave scenes because I know we're yeah. going to be talking about the, the promontory <laughs> yeah. scene. And apparently the, the Fort William set cost six million, apparently. Wow. I can believe that. I can believe that. And the studio um, sent uh, um, um, like a, a studio head or studio exec to stand behind Michael Mann to stop him shooting too much because he was doing like 20 takes of a scene and they were worried the budget was spiralling and they'd send the guy and apparently he sat behind Michael Mann on takes and would just lean in and go, that's enough, Michael, move on. That might explain some of the editing, actually, because some of the editing around the action is a little rough. Mm, it gets mm. choppy, doesn't it, at certain points? Sometimes that adds to it a little bit, I think, mm. in, um, you know, because it's kinetic in, in the way it's filmed and it adds a little bit. But I know exactly what you mean. There are some some part, some transitions where it's like, hmm? and that's I think that's partially because the film, when he took it to the studio, it was three hours long, the original cut. By 90s standards, that's very long. And it can drag a bit. It does drag a bit in places. What? Yeah. <laughs> Robbie Robbie is very critical of films that don't pace well. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get back to that one. <laughs> the score is gorgeous. Um, Ter uh, Trevor Jones and Randy Eldman uh, worked on the score. So it was mostly Trevor Jones. Um, and because they were recutting everything, the, the musical cues had to change in some places. And, and Eldman came in and, and worked on that. 
And what I found really interesting was that it was originally going to be like a sort of electronic score. And then they reorchestrated it into a more traditional sort of orchestral thing and little tinges of that sort of um, electronic score still in there at times. And you can, you can basically hear what they were going to do, what, going to, what they were going to be going for. Beautiful main theme, um, Promontory, um, which is based on a, a Dougie McLaren folk song called The Gale, um, which came out in the early 90s. Just one of my favorite parts of the film is is that you know the opening sequence where he's running through the the brush and then obviously the promontory scene is is spectacular with that score over the top. Mm. But yeah, I I always thought the score was really great with this movie. And at one point, it's correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure it's played live within the movie as you know in in camp kind of thing. I think it is in the back. Yeah, in the background. Yeah, I think you're right there. The level of detail they went to in some of the sets is was quite interesting. Speaking of detail, and you mentioned advisors and you know Michael Mann being certain a certain level, a bit of a Ridley Scott in that he'll he'll pay a lot of attention to some details and then just kind of ignore others. Yeah. But we, we also have a relatively early example of a, a military boot camp. Well not just military, but woodsman, mountain man, survivalist mm. boot camp that Day Lewis was put through for this. And so that was, I had to write this down, a Colonel David Webster, who essentially put him to get through a SEER school, uh, Survival, Evasion, Resistance and Escape training. Wow. In, and had him, weirdly, I found this fascinating from my perspective and Matt's, trained him with M16, shotguns, pistols, position, hold, moving through cover, that kind of thing, and then went backwards to the muzzle loaders. So he, he came to it... Because one approach would have been to just launch him straight in, don't let him near a modern weapon. Yeah. But they got him into the mindset and then went back in time. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, there's there's some um, footage of that in the uh, the making of documentary, isn't there? That's where I saw and it. And yeah. he's there with an M16A1, I think it is. And there's, yeah. um, he's got like a, there's a SIG pistol, I think he, he, he shoots on a range with. And yeah, there's a shotgun in there. It's, it's really interesting that, they put him through that i think that's really i can't i i wonder i wonder if that was done on recommendation from people like dale die or it was just something man thought of or because i don't know when that became an industry practice it's i mean people always talk about private ryan with in reference to that and it Mm. kind of snowballed from there yeah they did it on a bridge too far as well the apa Um, right yeah attenborough's private army yeah I'd be interested to know who, what, you know, the first recognisable movie actor boot camp when that was. That mm. was this is relatively early, certainly for a for a, an individual sort of lead actor to be put through. Yeah, mm. um, and you know, he, bulk, he bulked up and he lived somewhat. He did a bit of a Vigo Mortensen and lived with the rifle. Mm. Um, yeah, and you can really see it. He's just so he's so comfortable with that weapon and in that clothes, in the costume, and in that environment. It really worked, and that's yeah. They recognise the value of that now, and they do it with virtually everybody. I mean, shame is that his accent wasn't on point as much because it's a bit over the shop in points. It is a bit ropey, um, a little bit. He sounded I, like he sounded like a new like he was from Newcastle in some bits to me. I got really confused because he looks like Andy Carroll anyway, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think we can let that excuse that as um, an old accent that. Yeah, you know, from from the 18th century. That's maybe. I wasn't think. I wasn't thinking. I wasn't thinking that. No, that that makes sense. Then. No, that makes sense. It's not what it is. That's 
not what he's doing. He's just doing a mid-Atlantic accent. Not that well. <laughs> no, it's, it's a bit ropey. There's some quips Modern. in there, aren't there? My, my favourite is where he, he stops him shooting at the running guy and says, in case your aim is better than your judgment. <laughs> yeah, it's such a it's such an Arnie line, isn't it? You know, you, it's really Arnie. It's a bit, a bit too sophisticated for Arnie, I, I think. Yeah. But I like Hay- Haywood's reaction is totally British officer at the time. She's saying, "What? What the hell did you <laughs> say to me?" Bam. <laughs> but but I like Haywood's um, the way he talks is quite accurate for me, and he, like it seems quite accurate. You know, I'll have you beaten from this fort. I I, I love that line. It's just such a. Yeah, he really sells his character. It's a shame that he's not in more like roles like this because he's really good at them. Yeah, it's, he has that sort of interesting bit of um, period drama at the beginning where he's talking to um, Colonel Monroe's um, daughter and he's trying to ask for a hand in marriage and he, he very politely gets turned down. Yeah. Um, and then later on he gets less politely turned down. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although not as badly if she turns down uh, Magua. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The ultimate snub, isn't it? I think Madeline Stowe in this is quite good. I think mm. she na- she nails that lad with a with the musket, but with a pistol, doesn't she? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. That the, headshot, the, cracking. The headshot, yeah. absolutely nails him. Yeah, not even aiming properly, mind you. She's very close. Great point shooting. Yeah. Well, she's Mamro's daughter, so I assume she picked it up from him. Yeah. <laughs> So should we move on to plot? So I've got down um, orphaned, adopted Hawkeye um, Poe falls in love with the British officer's daughter during the French Indian War of 1754 to 1763. That's literally the plot. There's there's nothing else going on, like cr- crazily. There's so much going on in this movie, but yet there's nothing going on as well. I, the plot re- is really weak for me this week because I'm just like, okay, so you fall in love with this girl and I totally get it. You know, she might be the the most sophisticated, attractive woman you've ever seen. But you've how long have you been living there? And you had a family that you were, were talking to, and I assume that was your love interest. And and then you just abandon everything for this woman that you've met like in two seconds. But during this really amazing set piece war film, it's just such a weird one. Yeah, I can understand where you're coming from with that. Um, it's a very um interesting plot in that it's very a to b to c in that mm. it's saves them takes them to the fort forts under siege fort falls they escape but don't escape but well enough not to be captured he goes into the um the village saves them but doesn't save them well enough <laughs> and then really great ending you know <laughs> it is almost like a road movie in that in that respect yeah, it's a it's a road movie through the Blue Ridge Mountains. <laughs> yeah, which is gorgeous, and that's you know that's not a bad thing. Well, I was watching film ninety two with Barry Norman, and he said that that matinee adventure fantasy. That's what he described it as. It is. It's James Fenimore Cooper who was. He, he, they were adventure novels, weren't they? Really, more than anything else. It is an adventure film, though. I think at heart, it just happens to be set in a war. It, it's such an interesting film. Um, but as a complete novice to the to the period, it was just nice to obviously know a bit a little bit about that that era. But it was nice to see it represented in film. It's very rare, to be honest. There's very few 
um, films that focus on the French and Indian wars. Um, you've got um, Northwest Passage with Spencer Tracy, which is a great film from 1940. That's Rogers Rangers. Um, then you've got um, Drums Along the Mohawk, which was 39 with Henry Fonda. We've already mentioned um, Gary Cooper in uh, the, the earlier adaptation, but he was also in um, The Unconquered. And then there's uh, the Allegheny um, Uprising with John Wayne. Wow. All in this sort of tight sort of mm. late 30s, 40s period. So it must have been one of those eras where American cinema going audiences were were interested in that sort of period, which I thought was really interesting. For me, for me the... the- the plot, I think, I think what they tried to do. It, the book is clearly. I've never read it, and I, and I never will. No, I haven't read it. Either. Everyone says it's terrible, mm. um, but it, but it's iconic and has spawned all of these other adaptations. And so you're kind of saddled with this very limited plot. And what they tried to do is recenter it on the Native American place in the world or place in America and how that that was under attack and. So you can't always can't get away from a very lightweight plot, and I, so I think they did more than the best of it. I think they turned mm. it into some, almost turned it into something different. Mm. And maybe the thing to do would have been to have made a a different film. But <laughs> I, you know, this thing is like a it's like a rolling stone that's gathered moss, hasn't it? For some people, it's a, yeah, a, it's a really great way of putting it. Yeah, iconic. So yeah, no, I quite I quite like the way. So it doesn't really subvert. Um, the novel but it does its own thing with it yeah it definitely does i mean the novel's based loosely around the siege of fort william henry in 1757 which uh, it does say in the film but obviously this that siege was a little bit different in that the massacre that followed it that is depicted in the film wasn't quite as um complete as it's portrayed in the film uh only about 180 were killed Right. Uh, and Monroe, obviously, he didn't actually die uh, during during that massacre. He died a few months later uh, okay. in in Albany. Spoiler alert, guys! Come on, I know exactly. Um, so there's there's interesting sort of disconnects from the history and from the book. I mean, as I was saying, it's sort of one of the few films which is made about the period, and it's definitely one of the few modern films that have been made about the period. Yeah, and it do, it does a fairly good job, I think, at sort of representing that conflict. Um, there's some little bits where I would disagree with um, what's portrayed, sort of like the the ambush scene at the beginning. Um, they've gone for, they've gone for portraying the the British as being very linear, which by the uh, by 1757 they'd definitely learnt their lessons from Braddock's massacre, essentially yeah. when he was retreating from uh, Monongahela. By the middle of that war, they they taken on that what was then known as the Indian way of war, and they taken on sort of the light infantry, use cover, move. Definitely don't all stand shoulder to shoulder. Yeah, not in space out a bit. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So I guess in movie terms, that's what people think of. Yeah. When you think of that war, you're probably not thinking French Indian War. You're probably thinking Napoleonic War, and that's your sort of mm. pin for that period. You know, you see muskets, you think you think Napoleonic. Yeah, mm. you see muskets and tricorn hats, you think Napoleonic era, whether you're right or wrong. So to have guys in column in lot firing in line is just what people expect, I guess, when muskets are brought in. And maybe for an American audience, it's the 
the war of independence that is in their mm -hmm. head so they're thinking it, it in that sense yeah you know, maybe they're just yeah. turning up to see english troops get killed because they don't like redcoats it's sort of <laughs> well they also forget that in the american war of independence most of the casualties were inflicted by either side in linear warfare not in hiding behind trees being because mm -hmm. that's you know you generally met on the field and and had a battle had it out yeah and the movie teases it and it really annoys me it teased it i got really annoyed at that bit you know like the light infantry stuff that matt's talking about we, we could do that by then we knew how to do that by then and we were we were fighting on those terms where where appropriate daniel de lewis um poe he even mentions like you have to get away from their skirmishes when they're trying to escape the fort later on in the movie he's like there's an outpost here and then he mentions the skirmishes so i'm like well hang on a minute then someone who's written this does have a knowledge yeah of that era. Although it probably means pickets but yeah yeah but i assumed it was people with like you know it was just troops on acting on their own initiative that's a great scene which i think we'll talk about in in fave scenes but yeah so i think we should move on to ali tally because the, the the plot this week isn't it's not the strongest but there's a lot going on and then mm -hmm. we'll get into it it's time for ali tally on fighting on film So, Jonathan, as our guest this week, we'd love to hear your alley first. I've got a bit of a two-tier one, because I think the, the star of the show for, for me has to be The Rifle. Mm. I believe is called Kill Deer, um, but I don't think that's ever said on camera. I don't think so, but that's it interesting. Gripped. It's certainly what it was dubbed between, either between Michael Mann and the guy that made it, mm. uh, who was a chap called Wayne Watson. There's a whole story here that we haven't got time to go into where another rifle maker, because of course there are there have been almost continuously guys who have the skill to make lock, stock, and barrel and build it into a rifle with the same skill as someone from 200, 300 years ago. Mm. And so they sought out a guy to do that. And the two rifles he provided that were authentic to period, Michael Mann didn't. Well, he liked them. In fact, he kept them, apparently, but he oh. did not use them. And he went out to this Wayne Watson chap to create something that was actually a Pennsylvania rifle of about 1820. And that's what Killdeer is. Um, right. But having, having, so it's 50, 60 years out of, out of date and visibly mm -hmm. so if you know your long rifle mm -hmm. or, you know, 18th century rifles. But it's so it's so beautifully made and so well handled and so prominent. It's an extension of the character. It's about as alley as an 18th century or early 19th century design can get. So so that's my vote. And then there's a particular scene involving it. I don't. I can save that for later, or we can talk about it now. Go for it. Yeah. I actually had an inquiry about this, believe it or not, from a member of the public at the museum, and I realised. I knew what he was talking about, but I hadn't ever looked into it. And so I did. <laughs> and this is the, the fort scene, the courier scene that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So he, he's preparing actually multiple rifles. And this is where the editing doesn't quite flow. Mm -hmm. they, they've cut it up and put stuff a bit out of order, I think. Um, so he's, they're preparing different weapons. There's more, more than one of them. <clears throat> and the idea is to cover this guy as he gets away from the fort. Brilliant scene. And like all the other scenes involving um, the rifles in particular, 
you really get the sense of the skill, experience, and the effort required to accurately fire a shot with a with a weapon. It's very hard to depict that. He does it in heat with the FNC. Yes. Just that moment of quiet and still and bam. And you get that in this. Yeah. Um, and so the bit I'm blithering toward is um, he gets a length of silk and he's kind of quietly cutting this piece of silk clothing in the prior scene, actually. And you don't, you don't really notice what he's doing. Yeah, he says, do you mind? And he takes off a shelf, doesn't he? Yeah. Oh, is that what that is for? Okay. Yeah. I thought it was a bit... I thought it was a bit of bandage. Like I thought he'd nicked himself on the way in or something. Ah, okay. That's exactly what it looks like in the scene. But then you realise later, or if you care enough, you go back and look, and he has it on his kit. And then what he's doing, and this should really have happened in a different sequence, but he actually, with his knife, cuts a, a patch of silk, and then he would have loaded the bullet on top of that, with obviously pour the powder in first, and the idea, and he actually says... Another 40 yards, I think, is the line. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Which is, as presented, nonsense. Mm-hmm. You, know, you you can't get another 40 yards by adding a silk patch, unless unless the idea was you were just patching the, the gap, because it creates a... a it, it reduces what's called the windage, so the gap around the bullet, yeah. and prevents some of the gases being wasted as they go past. But So that's true of any patch so riflemen would use patches silk or no silk or no exactly yeah now the kind of the argument presented if you like is that it's silk and is a tight weave a little more loosely woven piece of cloth might be less efficient but there's no way you're getting an extra 40 yards out of it out of just that but having gone back to the script (laughs) originally it was just a tightly woven cloth and he wets it so it's and there's something called spit patching that right. is done today and was almost certainly done then. Yeah. But the critical thing is that it, they do specify a stouter charge of powder as well. Okay. So he's getting his extra 40 yards from more gunpowder. <laughs> right. Plus a little bit more and maybe a little bit more precision from his wet, tight wo- weaven, weaven? tight woven patch. That's so interesting because, wow. I mean, as you mentioned there, the editing is a little bit off because it kind of goes straight to the frizzen. After he's cut it, it doesn't show him putting the ball and seating the ball and, and ramming it down. It, the, it sort of, the camera cuts to a close-up of the lock. It's weirder than that, actually. It shows, it? having just watched it again, I paid particular attention to this scene again, and I'm pretty sure it's the same rifle as, he, as in his rifle. Mm. And he, he he's shown ramming. Then it cuts to him cutting the yeah, silk. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Which is the wrong way around. Because mm. the it's too late now. Yeah. Uh, then it cuts to him tapping priming powder into the pan. So it's in completely the wrong order, unless it's a quick it's like a, a montage of him loading different weapons. But I don't think it is. I think it's just an editing goof. I think it is too. Because it can now yeah. you say it, I got really confused in that scene because he was getting handed so many rifles that I, I, it was lost on me that he'd put even. And is it, it is it is it the the long rifle that he fires last at that last yeah. shot? Okay, good. Well, we got that right at least. Yeah, because I assume he <laughs> fired it first, and then he by the time that he'd fired all those others, his was ready to shoot again. Surely they'd have to show one of Ooh. his mates putting the silk in. Yeah, because he didn't load. Yeah. I think the other two are uh, muskets. 
Right. Uh, do you know, I'm not even sure. I'd have to go back again. And <laughs> um, my impression is that they might be rifles as well. Mm. I mean, that they could, in fact, be fouling pieces. They could, yeah. yeah. Were often often used. In fact, I only learned recently were used in the English Civil War as well as a sort of sharpshooter's weapon. Right. And you can you can get up to hundred yards. You can be as good as a a military rifle with one of those. Because the muskets are lasers in this movie. Like one thing that I did sort of notice, it's got that trope of extremely accurate musketry in certain sequences. The ranges aren't too bad though. Yeah, it, it, yeah. I was going to say, is that me sort of thinking something from history and then putting it into a movie? And I'm like, is that just a cliche? Wrong there. Partly, partly that maybe. But I'm, I'm trying to think. Of, I'm struggling to think of a scene where musketry is shown to be. Very oh, see, ah, you see. So this is me getting my muskets and my rifles mixed up because I don't know I enough about so. the period. Yeah. This is this is the episode that ruins Foff the Foff <laughs> podcast. I'm just. <laughs> getting two firearms experts and someone who's <laughs> read Saul David's All the King's Men and it just goes all to part. So, <laughs> I know I know what you're saying, Rob. So you're what you're thinking of is the musketry from the linear formations, the the, the red coats isn't yeah. particularly accurate because they're basically in every scene they're seen in, they're seen blasting foliage. That's what their main task seems to be. And then there's there's um Hawkeye and the guys that are firing the I think they're mostly rifles. There might be one or two that are okay, um, sort of trade muskets, Fowler's type, but they're very accurate. Yeah, but okay. I think that's because they're patching and the ranges that they're shooting at aren't super long. Yeah, there aren't. Yeah, actually, no, there aren't many. There aren't many long range shots attempted. It's the, it's just that one shot when he's the courier, isn't it? And he nails the guy. Yeah, and it puts it puts that yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of nice emphasis on it where it, it slows everything down. There's the music gets a little bit quieter, and we get that panning shot along the length of the barrel up to, you know, you know the lock and his trigger finger, and that's it. That's the heat shot, isn't it? Yeah, it's the heat shot. It's mm. it's the 18th century heat shot. And the the uh, the picket, the guy that was chasing the courier, just gets knocked down. And mm. he even has a squib because a little little patch oh, of red yeah. appears on his yep. chest, which I thought was a neat. I've learned the difference between muskets and rifles today, even though I should have known it anyway. Jonathan, do you want to explain the difference between a musket and a rifle? Yeah, as you're the as you're the ranking firearms expert here. <laughs> Don't put yourself down, Matt. God. Yeah. Next um, week, me and me and uh, I me haven't and got the title uh, keeper yeah. of firearms and artillery. So yeah. you heard it here, here, folks. From next week, it's just me and Jonathan because Matt. <laughs> Matt's just you know. I don't think that, Jonathan has the time, but if he wants to, yeah. off your wall, Matt. Take that degree down. You've just <laughs> ruined your whole professional lineage here. Uh, difference between a rifle and a musket. Yeah. Um, right. So actually, people don't realise this, but rifle is technically short for rifle gun. Um, unless it's short for rifle musket, because <laughs> uh, a gun is well, everyone knows what a gun is. Um, if you if you put a spiral groove in the barrel, um, originally termed screwing. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So a screwed gun, um, that gives you accuracy because it spin stabilizes the bullet. So very, early, you know, originally it would have been called a, a screwed, a screwed gun or a screwed birding piece or fowling piece or whatever the thing might be. You can see why they they went with rifle. <laughs> yes, it's a shame, really. Uh, yeah, the opportunity is is, is lost now. But uh, yeah, so that <laughs> sometime about the 1680s that they start using the term rifled, which is from you know like you rifle through a drawer. You, you rifle a palace of its of its loot. Yeah. Um, rifle the barrel. Uh, so you're pulling out material when you're rifling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The main thing is the is the um, rifled bore, which you can't see from the outside, of course. Mm. And so, in the movie, you can spot the rifles because they're shorter. They have a, a dropped, curved stock. If you think of something like a Winchester later on, that still has a hint of that dropped down stock. Which is which positions your eye behind the sights, which for a musket is not really at all important. Yeah. Um, so in this context, they're they're shorter, they've got sights, they've got a dropped butt stock. And as Matt says, though, some of them look like they could be something a bit different. And a fouling piece, you don't really know whether that's a rifle or not without getting up close and personal with it. So there you go. Basically, a, a musket is a smooth bore. Uh, a barrel that isn't rifled, hence is less accurate, um, because there's no spin imparted on the ball. I must um, bore you briefly further with musket is technically just a military long gun, mm-hmm. which is why you have the, f- the phrase rifle musket. Okay. Uh, yes. So very, yeah. very quickly that falls away because all muskets are rifles, and it's just more convenient to call them all rifles, if that makes sense. Right. So for a period of time, we have rifle muskets because we used to have... Yeah, musket is. This is why we still have the term musketry later, because it's the application of military fire, military infantry long gun fire, and it doesn't matter whether it's rifled or not. Technically, mm-hmm. this is great. This is why I love doing this because I'm like, I just watched the movie, but now I'm learning all about this. this. Is fantastic, great. Whether you want it or not, proper terminology, and now we all, everyone knows what the difference between uh, a smoothbore, a musket, and a rifle is. There we go. You don't get that on other film pods. You definitely bloody don't get that on other film pods. So, Matt, your rally this week. Okay, this is a bit contentious because it's, it doesn't appear in every cut of the film. During the siege sequence, that part where the, Jonathan's just mentioned where the courier uh, tries to break off and get to um, Fort Edward, I think it is, Monroe says that Major Hayward will uh, provide a, a diversion, a distraction. And in the version that's on Netflix and the version that's often shown on TV, a lot has been cut and spliced and changed. In the version I had as a kid, which was on, on VHS, 
um, or maybe DVD, I don't remember. But I vividly remember um, the, the diversion being briefly shown. So it's like a, it's a, it's a very short shot of Hayward with a line of grenadiers. And one of the grenadiers behind him is armed with a flintlock hand mortar, which is essentially a, um, an 18th century grenade launcher. Everyone often forgets that grenades have been around a lot longer than the, the 19th, 20th century. Yeah. And they date back into the, the 1500s, probably even earlier. And they're often made from either iron or, or little bits of pot. By this point, they're predominantly iron and they're fragmentation weapons. So you light a little fuse, you pop it in the, the very short barrel of your hand mortar. And then your hand mortar is a flintlock, much like the, the muskets and fowling pieces and, and rifles shown in the film. And then you fire that and then it projects it downrange, hopefully landing amongst your 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 enemies and, and doing yeah. all kinds of chaos and damage. But it's this it's so briefly seen in the director's cut of the movie, but it's just too cool not to mention. Because I can't think of any any other film where it appears. If you don't know what it is, you're just sat there thinking, why is that man holding a very stubby gun? I mean, I'd never I'd never even seen one until Matt sent me a photo. And then obviously you scour the film and on function the Netflix version doesn't have it on there, but not just including it, but making it. Oh yeah. Mm. It's probably been adapted from a an existing prop musket, but the actual mm. um muzzle section has been fabricated. Often made of brass, weren't they? The original ones and yeah, we've we've got quite a few different flavours of this. Uh, we've even got one with where the cup launcher, if you like, is built into the butt stock. Oh right. Now my my impression. From, I haven't really researched this in any depth, and if you've come across references, Matt, let me know. My impression is that virtually all of these, whether they're little stubby launchers like the one that you can see on IMFDB, if you, if you go on there, if you can't see it on Netflix. Yeah, sadly. Or the thing I've just described, the standard version seems to have been a naval thing. Mm. Not heard tell of them being used for land service. I, I haven't looked it in too much depth, but from when I did my um, my undergraduate dissertation well it was about light infantry tactics mostly in north america mm -hmm. and in that came about you know the, the other the other end of the flank companies is the grenadiers by that point by the 1770s then there's nothing like that anymore they're not even carrying grenades at that point the the, the french and indian war the seven years war i've never seen an actual account of a grenade being used um from a from a launcher in north america and i don't even know um how widely they, you know, they were, they were used prior, so you know, seventeen forties, etc. But yeah, I, I, I've never seen um, in-depth research on them, so I, it was just a really interesting thing that I, I saw in in the film. I remember that it was was in the film, and thankfully someone did capture it and put it online. Yeah, so it confirmed it for me. And at the very least, it's plausible because mm. we've got at least one that we date to about seventeen forty, and it's it looks very much like the one in the movie. It's just a bit shorter, actually. So for me this week, I mean, I've got, I've got two. I've got a question to ask John, and I've got my own alley pick. So I'm a, I'll go with my own alley pick. It's the Gunstock War Club that we see awesome. um, that that Matt Maguire gets taken out with at the end of the movie. It's just an amazing looking bit of kit. You know, I've never seen one before. Yeah, it just look. It looks like a, a gunstock. It looks like sort of. I mean, to me, it looked like a matchlock sort of type stock in a way it's got that really sort of angled design and i can sort of see why you'd make it like that because it's it's a really good sort of ergonomic design for swinging and 
hitting people with and it's got little tomahawks on it and it's just and it's in a lot from a lot of contemporary things that i found is that there's a, a like a, a drawing from fort william siege of the french troops trying to stop the that their native american allies attacking the the british column mm. and there's a guy swinging one in that sketch as we say with the cinematography they're taking cues from paintings i wonder if the reason it's included in the movie is because there's sketches from the time of showing them in use yeah yeah but I just, it's a great inclusion i mean it's, i don't i've never seen one in any movie before it's just a really really interesting little inclusion and even though it is really cool it gets used really sparingly but in a good way yeah you get that first spare bit during the the first ambush when he throws it and that's like wow okay mm, mm. it likes like um so good it's, isn't it but it's a very cool weapon and i think it's such an interesting thing where again the uh, european influence on native culture comes in where they've been inspired by the shape of a gunstock to make uh, a melee weapon mm. from that shape i just think that's re- I, I haven't looked into it but th- watching the film again i was like i need to look into that and see if anyone's written anything interesting about it because i want to know more about what that is and why they did that there's so much to go on tangents from this movie i think that's one of the strengths of it my question for john is i was reading up some um weapons that were used in the film and then there was you know the different rifles and now muskets i'm glad we cleared that up earlier but i came across trade muskets and i'd never heard of like what what they were before trade muskets i mean where do they come from the imfdb thing is a bit curious and they're very confident that these are trade muskets and i suppose they probably are as we've established it's quite hard to tell you know some of these things might be fouling pieces not so much muskets so there's there's, there's a i suppose there's a spectrum um if you think of modern rifles you know ar-15s can be both military rifles or civilian rifles and sometimes the visual difference is very little and the same is kind of true here so a trade musket is simply a musket that's been traded okay <laughs> fair enough so, so that means they they might look exactly like a brown vest, right? And the only difference would be the markings. You know, it wouldn't have uh, Tower George or whichever the monarch is at the time monogram cipher on the lock, and the various little broad arrow uh, ownership acceptance marks and the military proof marks. They'd have civilian proof marks or no proof marks. A lot of trade muskets certainly later on didn't see proof, mm-hmm. and so might blow up because <laughs> that's really what they are: cheap poundland versions love it of a musket or maybe they're more like a fowler but typically they have the look of a musket because that's well, that's what they wanted like a famous design that everyone knows the look of sort of thing yeah looks like a brown best looks like a charleville same thing when you go on wish.com and you buy something that looks like something else and it's not as good <laughs> i just find it really interesting it's just it's nice the movie takes the time to sort of showcase all these different weapons and doesn't just stick with the, the the old classics, you know, yeah. sort of like in cowboy movies, everyone's got a certain type of revolver, things like that. At least this what this film does go out of its way to present some really interesting firearms. There's a really good variety, actually. Mm. Um, yeah, some, some of them, yeah, you call them, call them trade muskets. They might be, they might have been locally made. Yeah, it makes know. sense for the militia because they, you know, they bang on about protecting their homes and they've all got weapons. So it makes perfect sense. But I just thought it was a really interesting little thing. It's a cost thing as well. So if you think about it in in the reality of, of, of the period, so if you if you can't afford a handmade fowling piece, then you might get a trade a trade gun. 
Yeah. Um, it's the same now with with Jonathan mentioned AR15s. You can get mil spec AR15s, and then you can get AR15s that aren't mil spec. And mil spec has come to be this sort of uh, standard that you look for because it's what the military spec is. That makes sense. So that Ali Telly this week was absolutely fascinating. I learned so much. I think we'll move on to favourite scenes. Yeah. John, what's your favourite scene from the film? As a guest, you you have to go first. It's the law. I've, I've kind of cheated in in that I combined the Ali bit of kit with one of my favourite scenes. But then I suppose because I'm a bit critical of it, it can't be my my true favourite. And my true favourite is, there's all sorts of analogies you could think of, but it's like the 18th century version of the Matrix lobby scene. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And it is the run, the promontory, the running up the mountainside, take, you know, smoking fools, (laughs) left, right and centre, melee combat, uh, New York reloads, a dual reeler, a dual dual wield with two rifles yeah. at one point, which is not entirely plausible in that he's hit firing and not even looking, and he takes out two guys who must be set, you know, a number of feet apart. This is where hey, this is Hawkeye. Hawkeye. Don't forget, yeah, <laughs> it's Hawkeye. So we we let him off, but it's kind of got it all, and the the the, the build so build of the music, the the way it's filmed. Um, there's no no issues, I don't think, with the editing there. No. Except what I one complaint, and that's that in the behind the scenes they talk about tra- one of the many things Daniel Day Lewis trained to do was to reload on the run. Wow! And see him do that very briefly, but you don't see him complete it. In fact, it's you really only see a hint of him starting mm. to do it, mm. and then it cuts. And to try and keep that Michael Mann fast-paced feel, we lose what could have been a really amazing of yeah. feet really I wonder, I wonder if Daniel Day Lewis can still do that that'd be amazing if he can maybe, maybe he never quite nailed it <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh I've dropped my powder oh wait <laughs> well I, I think that scene that whole scene the choreography of it is amazing and yeah, in the behind the scenes stuff which is up on YouTube um, you do see him practicing some of those uh, moves that he does you know in the, in the, the central ambush the, the massacre scene there's that great scene where he, he cuts like someone's um, tendons behind their knee. Oh yeah, that's Oof. that's horrible. That's a hell of a scene. Um, and he, you see him practicing that a couple of times, and you see him actually doing the reload practice. There's a little clip of it. It doesn't it, again. Mm. It doesn't show you the whole thing. Mm. There's a lot a lot of running in this movie. There is a lot of running, yeah. and it culminates in the ultimate scene of running. Where, as I say, it's like, or you could compare it to the Circle Club in the first John Wick movie, <laughs> where it's just a highly skilled guy moving from A to B, wasting people, and it's amazing. He does go a bit de- like Rambo, doesn't he? A little bit, and he goes a bit one one man army. But there's a one bit, and I'm, I'm sticking in my craw, and I have to say it in that sequence where Daniel Day's just knocked out half that column of lads, and he they go for a little cave clearing to get to where M- Mogwai's trying to kill Unax and Daniel Day-Lewis brushes up against the side of a rock and it's not a rock it's like a piece of like cloth or like rubber like tarpaulin or something and it just judders <laughs> there's a separate scene ruin the some... whole film for you I hasn't know. 
but there's a separate scene where someone's running past it and it clearly is like a bit of rock just a bit of like fake rock pulled over a frame or something can i can i just say i know matt said before we went live that he he knew that and, and was looking for it and didn't see it i didn't know that and so didn't look for it but i just googled it and the top result is a youtube video 18 seconds long called hilariously last fake rock of the Mohicans. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love it. There's supposed to be a chain link fence at the beginning of the film. You know, where he begins the, the deer hunt. There's supposed to be just in, in the corner of the shot, there's a chain link fence. And then as they're marching out from the surrender of the fort, apparently there's a couple of propane tanks visible at one point. It's not as bad as the je- the guy wearing jeans in the uh, Gladiator, though, is it? I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It's, just a nice, it's just a great little gaff. Yeah. It is. But that whole scene. Yeah, it's fantastic. Is just, isn't it? It, it still gives me goosebumps. Mm that and the and the um the ambush at the beginning which i think rob's going to talk about in, in a second yeah they both yeah every time i watch them, i'm like damn this, this mm. is so well done one thing that i did think about watching that is there's a bit where he sort of like hits a guy in the face with his rifle i've always been struck by long rifles always seem quite fragile so i always think they're always gonna gonna break this you know because the stocks are so thin on them there's a lot of hand to hand in that film where you think. No, I think that's legitimate. If you, especially the night, the more nicely made ones, the more wood you remove to make them look nice, the more chance of it breaking. Yeah. Um, but this is why things like brown bess are big and clunky. Uh, it's the, the the brown bess is the AK of the 18th and 19th century. It is, yeah. and I can't, I can't, I can't let this podcast go without asking Jonathan to briefly try and explain to us where the name Brown Best comes from, because he wrote a paper on this and it's very good. Surprisingly straightforward. You know, people can write thousands of words about it, apparently, but it's actually really straightforward. <laughs> there have been lots of attempts to explain it, a bit like, you know, the hence the expression thing of mm. it was named after Queen Elizabeth, hence Beth. Yeah, which... Mm. Yeah, and the, named after its browned barrel. Well, the barrels weren't browned. There's some of them even more ridiculous than that. I can't bring them to mind at the moment, but it's actually really straightforward. It's the fact that the stock is brown, okay. but also the dual meaning of the word brown, which originally meant ordinary, and Bess being a sort of generic nickname for a woman, a sort of ordinary woman, a common woman, mm-hmm. camp follower, a prostitute maybe, yeah, yeah, who might be also tanned from the sun. So potentially the gun's brown, the woman's a bit brown. Um, and she's brown in the sense of being ordinary. Bess. That makes sense uh, to me. Yeah. yeah. And it's almost definitively that. I mean, often it's very hard to be definitive about these things, but we have enough sources going far enough back to be pretty damn sure that that's what this means. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's this, this is the only only movie podcast you will ever hear someone explain what a brown Bess is to you. Now, this is a great Guaranteed. episode this week. People are getting, you know, people are getting, you know, taught about musketry and rifles and this is why we love doing it because we love to do the movie but we also get all these extra great little bits of history on top and it's exactly why we do it definitely rabbit holes yeah exactly and you know you'd be silly not to go down them so what's yours rob what's your favorite scene as i say at the start i had only seen it a couple of times for the the podcast um and i'm I'm choosing the ambush at the start because i wasn't expecting it and it really came out of the blue because you know i'll get into it later i think the pacing at times could do with a little bit of a trim and I already know they've trimmed. That's it. what the studio said as well. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm that bloke, I'm Michael Mann. You know, I'm him. But I was thinking, oh come on, I'm begging for something to happen at this point. You know, nearly half an hour in. So Magwai is, is attached as a scout to Haywood's um, column that are going to reinforce Fort William Henry. So uh, Cora 
um, complains about being tired or, and, and they say, can we stop to Haywood? And he's like, yes, you know, scout, we're going to stop here. Um, um, and Mugwai goes, no, no, you know, up here is much better um, to, you know, rest. It's like a, a clearing. It's much nicer. So, okay. Like nothing to untoward there. You know, Haywood's clearly a little bit annoyed, um, but they keep going up the, 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 the little passageway through the, through the woods. And then Magwai sort of walks back towards the end of the column. And you're thinking, okay, nothing wrong there. He's just going to check check behind the column to see if anything's going on. You know, at this point, he's not the movie's antagonist. He's just a new character. And then he drops a little tomahawk by the side of his, like, thigh. And I'm like, oh, hang on. Okay. And then you get the really sh- sort of low sound, sort of the soundtrack start to kick in a little bit. And you think, okay, something's coming. And he absolutely wallops this poor red coat in the neck. He's so shocked, isn't he? Poor yeah, lad. that poor little lad. He literally, I think he's only like, he mustn't be at nearly 20 or something. It's really young. Mugwai lets rip with a, a, a like a, a musket from his waist, hip fires it. And then see, this is where the editing annoyed me. Because I'm thinking, well, Mugwai's toast. There's like 20 red coats around him. We're going to batter him to death with their brown besses. But he vanishes. So I assume he ran up into the, into the ridge line or something. And then all hell breaks loose and, and Mugwai's mates come out of the, the, the the tree line and start absolutely caning this little little company of redcoats that get they just get routed don't they really quickly i assumed haywood was green i assumed he didn't know what he was doing and he's trying to protect the two women and i'm like well, we all gonna be toast as well mate in a minute and then oh no hawkeye comes and saves the day hooray it's just a great little scene and all the especially when daniel day comes in because he starts co- really choreograph fighting these people um, and the Red Coats didn't try choreograph fighting; that they just got killed, and they should have tried <laughs> choreograph fighting off the, the their assailants. If only they tried some choreography. God yeah, damn it! Yeah, the, the British <laughs> Army should have been training that. Really, um, take the King Shilling and some choreograph fighting exercises, please. And it sets the tone for every other set piece after, because the set pieces ramp, and then they ramp again, and you get that battle at the end. But as a, as an opening set piece to any film, it's it's a great one yeah for sure you just made me realize something that is kind of missing from the movie but i think you can kind of explain it very little bayonet action some of them end up with them on but you don't see them use them yeah. really because haywood haywood just calls them to make ready and fire mm. in that sequence he doesn't say fix bayonets which is the first thing you'd do there's always lads sort of readying their brown bases as clubs shouldn't you, is there not an order for that because they seem to do it quite quick some of them there's there's a lot to say in this sequence, which cinematically is brilliant, and I love it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I, I love the bit where you know the scores pounded and Daniel Day Lewis and the lads just come charging through. That's great, um, and they just start ripping who on apart because that's that's bad. Exactly. <laughs> away the um, lads. Exactly. Yeah, Daniel Day Lewis definitely showed away the lads before they away came the in. Lads. Um, <laughs> and I like I like your theory, Rob, that. Hayward is green. He's fresh off the boat. He's just arrived from England. It's interesting because they are fighting as they would have fought um, before any of the experience of fighting in North America. So those lads are supposed to be the 60th Royal American Regiment, um, which were later, much later, uh, a light infantry regiment. But at this point, they're a line regiment. Well, at this point in the war, they're fairly experienced in how to fight. That ambush is an allusion to Braddock's... Um, defeat at Monongala, where um, they did fight in linear formations in close quarters. And 
an interesting thing that the film doesn't portray. It, it doesn't show the Indians firing from the tree line. Instead, the natives come in and it's hand-to-hand melee quite quickly after the first volley. Whereas at uh, Monongahela, they, they picked off the densely packed infantry over a course of hours. And you can't, you can't advance linear infantry into a tree line because it'll just break up and then all of the training that they've done for years previously evaporates. And it wasn't until fighting in North America became um, a serious prospect that was faced by larger numbers of the British Army because previously it had been mostly like a colonial settler type mm. militia yep. that had fought a lot of the smaller wars with the French and, and with the, the uh, native inhabitants. At this point, there's a lot of... Uh, British soldiers in North America, and they're having to learn how to fight in this completely different, quite confined sort of landscape where it's Mm. trees, there's uh, brush, there's foliage, lots of cover. And they're fighting an enemy that is totally skilled in light infantry warfare. And, you know, they've honed these skills from fighting each other and through hunting. If that's true, and I think it probably is now that we've dissected it a little bit, but if you're a red coat, fresh off the boat, and mm-hmm. you and so you're not fighting another line, you're fighting someone who's running at you mm-hmm. with got you don't know what weapons they've got, you don't know what their fighting style is going to be like. You, you know they're not even wearing like a regimental un, a regimented uniform. That's really got to shit you up in that split second. You're not going to know what to do. You know? Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a psychological aspect to it, most definitely, because you're fighting an enemy which is. You know, everyone's told you are savages. At that point, what would have probably been more likely is they would have opened ranks and moved forward. Yeah. And to the, meet yeah, them with bayonet. The fire control would have been better. But it's a great scene. I really like it. And there's interesting little historical caveats you can you can take from it. Oh, yeah. You told me he's got a saber when he shouldn't have a saber. Oh, yeah. Haywood has a saber where he would have probably had a spadroon. So, Matt, favorite scene? Um, my favorite scene, I think, is I mean, I, I love the ambush in the center of the film, but I really love the siege. And it's probably one of the few films to bother uh, representing or that would need to represent because there's not that many films about the period, like we said earlier. But it's one of the few films that portray an 18th century siege to the point where you have large siege guns. They talk about digging saps forward. Um, counter fire, counter battery fire, and then they do quite a detailed little shot of them loading mortars. Yeah, which is again very rare in films, and they they do quite. A, a, the mortars are very op. They're very overpowered in this. So like, as soon as the mortars are there, then that's it. It's game over. Yeah, which is which is true. That is um, something that did was true of sieges of the period, um, but they do they do lay waste pretty quickly. And that's that's more or less one of the things I like about that film is that it, they spent that six million and, and showed that scale. So there's loads yeah. of extras running around carrying ordnance. Mm. Mentioned it earlier. There's lots of uh, guys uh, running around inside the fort itself, and it even shows them aiming at one of the saps. There's a sequence where they aim at one of the saps where the guys are digging the trench forward to get the mortars in position and that's where the movie changes though the movie goes from adventure film that could be a frontier sort of movie but it 
it doesn't do that. It just switch flips on its head and it just becomes like, oh, it's a siege movie now. And you get that beautiful sweeping shot of all the French troops coming up. And then you've got, you know, Hawkeye and, and the main cast in the canoe coming up the in coming up the river. So you're see they're seeing it from a completely different angle. So you get to see it from a different angle. Everything is thought of and as as we say, the cinematography is really good, but that the sense of scale there is just it's off the charts. Yeah, the bit where they come out of the woods and they see the flashes in the distance. Yeah, really nice. That's really that's really something. It's mm. it's a very well done sort of sequence and probably six million dollars well spent, I would say. Definitely. And yeah. I've got to give an honourable mention for the battle, the last battle when the column are attacked. The way that the musket fire, rifle fire, where all the puffs of smoke come out of the tree line and mm. the column realise that they're under attack. And it just, it goes from like one or two little cracks to a crescendo of volley. Yep. And it, it just sounds so good. And you get that lovely shot of the whole column. Yeah. And you see like the independent companies, they're more like platoon size, but they're supposed to be companies sort of returning fire. Mm. And you've got lads, you know, lads panicking in the middle, holding their brown besses ready, like to hit people with. No CGI to to do this in post this all has yeah. to be choreographed only so many takes to Definitely. be able to pull that off oh there is one awful bit of cgi though did you see the bit with the waterfall the waterfall is that cgi it looks really weird it looks like it's know. like like a paint like a bad blue screen i'm pretty sure i know what that is and it's because there's a similar waterfall scene in predator uh -huh. where it suddenly goes to a, a totally different film stock it might even be stock footage film for something else or um a reshoot or something i think that's what it God is damn michael man ran out of money to shoot a waterfall <laughs> he spent six million on fort henry <laughs> we ain't got no money left uh, I, I do love your your <laughs> 1930s film exec voice it's that, just it's anytime it's an executive decision yeah. the 30s film man comes out <laughs> better than daniel day lewis's american accent <laughs> 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 that that three years doing that drama degree was well spent. Um. It was, it was. Um, yeah, that that scene is great because you get all of those. There's that, there must be at least three hundred people in that scene plus. Yeah, yeah it's incredible. Um, and it, the choreographing of of getting them all to begin firing at the right time, it must mm. must have been mind blowing, like you say, Jonathan. And what what I always liked about that is that you see you see the two um, daughters sort of like ride off into the into the towards the indians and then get off their horse which is exactly what i would not have ever have done i would have continued to ride my horse away <laughs> they have to do but, that so daniel day lewis can come in and stake his claim oh it's true the love it's interest true. yeah because mm -hmm. the only reason a lot of people do the certain things in this movie that they do is because it has to drive the plot and there's certain points where especially that battle scene it's not really it's not really the plot anymore. It's just a really nice battle sequence. Yeah. And they have to sort of ground it somewhere. One of the parts I do like about that, that Maurice Robes is on horseback, Kale Monroe, and a Huron jumps on the back of his horse and tries to stab him. And he blocks the hatchet with his sword, takes a horse pistol oh. and shoots him around his body. That's <laughs> so... It's so it's so cool. It's yeah. a very it's a very hardcore moment, and it just goes to show that Kel Monroe knew what he was doing because he's he is there. He's like he's he's sabering these these uh, attacking uh, Huron. We can't not discuss the fact that 
Magua shoots his horse from under him. Yes. And uh, then comes and carves his heart out. Oh, yeah. Very that metal. Is cool. that, that is that. I remember watching that as a kid going, oh, my God. Yeah. And, and, just, being, like, and just being totally shocked. Was it something that I, you know, I'll make sure that I kill your daughters mm. or your offspring so there's no seed left seedling yeah. left or something i'm like jesus christ you really hate this bloke don't you so like... in the film Marguerite's entire sort of motivation is that he doesn't like what the english the british are doing uh to his people yeah which is fair point and i and completely a... sided with him but what is interesting is that in the book the reason he hates Monroe is because he got him addicted to fire water oh Yes. So we've got, apparently in the book, he hates Monroe because he got him individually addicted to, to gambling and fire water. So there's no, no higher moral. It's just a, it's just a, you've, you've really ruined me as a person. I, I want my revenge type, type deal. Because mm, that's one of the things that makes it so interesting. And to dare I use the P word, progressive, um, mm. <laughs> for, the, for the early 90s, because the, the Native Americans are shown as more complex and mm-hmm. yeah, some of them are exactly. trying to, to, you know, well, he specifically is wanting to look, see what the white man's doing. We can do that and we can have power. The scene in the village later on, he completely lays it all out, doesn't he? It's like, yeah. we can we can trade, we can be as powerful as the whites, etc. I think he says yeah. or something along those words. The tribes were, at yeah. least for, for a time. Mm. I also really like the, the depiction of the Native Americans fully embracing firearms, which they yeah. did. Yeah. Because why wouldn't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas often, though, and you know, we, we often see them without, or maybe a couple have got you know, it's later on and they've got some Winchesters or something. Mm. Uh, well, yeah, they kept what, what worked for them, but they also adapted to what was new and capable and they use it to great effect. So I, I can forgive some of the tired tropes of how British infantry are depicted. Yeah. But how the Indians are depicted. That's true. Yeah. That's really a good point. Good. Really good. So as as usual, we've 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 crept into final thoughts while we were doing the final scenes, and that's usually how it goes. Jonathan, final thoughts. One of many of my favourite films where the details, a lot of the details are wrong, and the more you look, the more you'll see. Yeah. But the overall impression is just spot on, and you feel like you're watching something from history. For for me, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I wasn't, I didn't expect a lot going in. But I really, really enjoyed it. Once the sort of initial half hour out of the way, get the ambush out of the way, get to the siege, then I was invested. Early on, I was like, oh, okay, where's this going to go? Like, I must admit, I, I went off and made a cup of tea and came back. So I had to I had to go back a little bit where I'd missed. Um, so I missed the siege bit. So I was like, what? They're in a fort now? Because I, I didn't know they'd moved on. I was, you know, to go back. Um there's a pause button. I know there is, but I, <laughs> I hit mute and I think it's pause and I come back and yeah. That's that dangerous. Well. Good God. I know. I know. Um, <laughs> as I say, it's, it's a Michael Mann film. I mean, if that doesn't sell it for you, if, you, if you're a fan of heat, watch this. Yeah. This is 18th century heat. It literally is. And if you're not, you should be. Yes. Very true. For me, you know, that on, uh, on the head, John, when you said that it, creates that overall impression of the period and i think it does that really well there's lots of little bits you could pick out um you know costume wise it's quite good but if you really zoom on it um you see like uh some of the bits of uniform are a bit off um some of the drills aren't correct obviously 
but that's a very difficult thing to do for a big production like this in that it takes a desire to do that you know a desire to get every sort of minute thing right which often isn't there with filmmaking um but it does create that overall impression uh and it's it's such an amazing piece of cinema in its its locations its landscapes and the way it shoots them the depth of the choreography that goes into those you know those battles and those fight scenes so impressive and then you get that brilliant sort of sweeping feel throughout the film where it's it's a, a, a an epic adventure you're you're following the, these people through a wilderness which it's also a wilderness that doesn't get explored very often it's it's the the frontier before everything moved west before the mid to late 1800s so you get this interesting landscape of it's woodland it's all feels very close and then it opens out into these massive lakes and over these rolling mountains. It's just the location combined with the cinematography, the the skill of filmmaking and that score. Just It's just a really great film. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, I, for one, have learned so much about 1700 weaponry. Um, you know, I think we, we, we could have done two. We could have done an episode on the film and an episode on the weapons on the film quite easily. It's just been fantastic having you on. Um, you can find Jonathan on the, he's on GameSpot's YouTube channel. Really great weapons, d- detailed weapons videos on the um, Royal Armouries channel. Um, and we're just, we're just really glad to have him today. Yeah, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. I knew it'd be a good one. And I, I, I knew it was going to be good because A, I love the film. And B, I know you love the film. And I knew that you'd have some brilliant things to say. And we definitely went on some tangents that I think everyone's going to really enjoy. We did. We didn't even get into what pattern of brown best they were using. <laughs> Quickly, what was it? Uh, well, it should be pattern 1742, but it appears to be 1756. <laughs> there you go. Well, there you Which go. is entirely too new and wouldn't have reached them. No, exactly. Correct. But the differences are incredibly minor. We'll have to get um, Jonathan back for another one because um, it's just been, it's been great. So as always, uh, like, share, subscribe, wherever you're listening on. Uh, drop us a review if you if you do be so kind uh, you can uh, also support the podcast on patreon um, and you can find the link on our website fightingonfilm.com and uh, this is uh, the gang signing off again and we'll catch you again in the next one bye bye everyone bye guys planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with quince go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365 day returns hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.